Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you uh, perhaps not familiar with our broadcast, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible, how to apply the Bible, even to the uh, more challenging circumstances or even current controversies we face in this life, maybe uh, making a defense of your biblical faith. Boy, there certainly are an awful lot of skeptics out there uh, posing tough questions about Christianity. We like to think that this is a place you can go and get those questions answered. Maybe it's a question you've been asked. Maybe it's a question you've always wanted to ask, but you've never found a no harm, no foul, non-judgmental place to get that question uh, answered. We'd like to uh, provide you that opportunity here on the broadcast today. Uh, if you'd like to talk about the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we are all over it each and every day. But the most important thing is this. If you've got a sincere question regarding God's Word, we are looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Uh, Sean, uh, would you like to tell the people how they can get their questions to us? Well, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can give us a tweet at scottr4h at twitter.com. You can, of course, join us on social media through Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or on YouTube at A Reason for Hope. If you'd like a nice, cohesive list of these links and where to support us, as well as a means to circumvent the censorship that's becoming normal, you can join us on our website, which is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll have the email address spelled out for you, a means of not only sending us your questions, but giving us the chance to clarify and maybe deal with anonymity issues. You can email those to us as well. Just note that you wouldn't want your name mentioned on the air. That all being said, though, note that is how we are receiving your questions and why. If you have sincere Bible questions, we will address them and be setting aside the next hour to do just that. But before we take any time or effort in doing so, we want to make sure the Spirit's the one who adds, enables, and equips us for every good work. So, and we take a moment to pray and to see where he takes it. Yeah, let's do it. Father, we thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to explore your word today. And what uh, higher privilege could we ever have to look into your truth? Lord, it is your Holy Spirit that causes your truth uh, to go forth in a way that, that accomplishes exactly what you sent it out to do. It will never return to you void. We thank you, Lord, that when your word is taught properly, it's going to edify us. It's going to build up our knowledge of you. It's going to exhort us. It's going to give us uh, tangible and practical ways to apply your word, and it's going to comfort us. It's going to bring us right smack dab back into the wonderful closeness we can experience with you as we find our refuge in the shadow of your wings. We pray that all these things and so much more will happen during this time. I know you have special things that you want to say to each and every person that logs in or signs on or listens to us on the radio. So, Father, accomplish that work now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, as we're waiting for questions to come in, any 
just as a side note, uh, things to be aware of as far as the news is concerned? Um, there's uh, some um, interesting things, uh, for sort of a, uh, a uh, tail-ender to what we talked about uh, yesterday with the uh, Iran nuclear deal being put on hold, uh, largely for two reasons, I believe. Uh, first of all, because uh, the Saudis have uh, essentially said to our administration, came hat in hand, asking for them to increase oil production. They said, forget it. Uh, I think the Saudis are showing that they are very displeased with the United States putting forth this initiative to uh, essentially supply a uh, state sponsor of terrorism like Iran with $1 billion, with a B, dollars a month to be able to uh, not make life better for their citizens, but to export their brand of Islamic terrorism to the world. Uh, the other thing that we discovered uh, was that uh, the tiny uh, country, yet a NATO ally, uh, Albania, was the subject of a cyber attack from uh, Iran uh, in uh, the middle part of uh, July, the uh, perpetrators of this particular attack, which, by the way, uh, was a, a very potentially devastating attack, even to the point of being able to hijack uh, major uh, sources of, say, water and electricity for the nation and so forth. Uh, certainly nothing just uh, that would fall in the realm of just something of a prank or, or something along that line. It was so serious and uh, really kind of set, in a sense, a precedent that uh, Albania immediately uh, on Wednesday we saw uh, withdrew all of its uh, diplomatic ties with Iran and kicked out all of the Iranian diplomats in uh, the capital of Tirana, Albania. Well, the United States has followed up on that uh, by uh, reinstituting a level, uh, tranche, I guess we could use that term, of sanctions against Iran, uh, which seems to be moving in the opposite direction that the Iranians were interested in moving. Uh, as you know, if the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was signed, uh, the Iranians would uh, have quite a bit of uh, resources flowing in. But the United States, uh, to our credit, uh, imposed sanctions uh, upon Iran in light of all of this. Uh, the U.S. Treasury Department in a statement said the Ministry of Intelligence and Security, which is being sanctioned, directs several networks of cyber threat actors, including those involved with cyber espionage and ransomware attacks in support of the Iranian government. Uh, Microsoft, whose cybersecurity research team investigated the incident, sent a blog post on Thursday that the Iranian cyber operation uh, involved a combination of digital espionage techniques, data wiping malware, and online information options. The goal of the hackers was to embarrass uh, Albanian uh, officials. And so uh, the United States has uh, uh, reinstituted a level of, um, of sanctions uh, against Iran uh, financially in, uh, in their nature. Uh, the interesting thing about war, uh, it's been said, uh, I think it was uh, uh, von Clausewitz who once said that uh, diplomacy is war conducted under other means. Uh, I think uh, what we are seeing quite a bit in this world is war is going on for sure, but it's happening uh, in the realm of cyber attacks. Uh, we don't see explosions. Uh, sometimes we do, like when Israel caused the Iranian centrifuges to blow up with a cyber attack. But these sort of things are going on constantly, and I think we're going to see them accelerate as uh, 
the uh, time of Jesus' return draws near. So uh, that's probably the uh, single best uh, follow-up that we have. Uh, it does appear that evil has overplayed its hand with the Iranians attacking the Albanians. It seemed like they were almost home free uh, with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action being reinstituted. But now, as we told you on Wednesday, it has been put on hold until such time as it can be revisited in the uh, indefinite, not foreseeable future. Let us know if you need any clarification on those things in relevance to Bible prophecy, but note as well our prayers are for the salvation of the Persian and Saudi people, as well as the uh, stabilization of things in the Middle East, which again you roll your eyes at, but we know that that will be accomplished by something we're all equally looking forward to. Just hope that uh, Israel gets in on the action sooner than later. It's yes. their Messiah after all. Absolutely. So with that being said, uh, starting us off, I guess no sense in uh, jumping around early. We did our question of the week yesterday with Adrian Van Vactor discussing if Halloween is satanic, and Isaiah uh, did us the favor of covering all the bases, so I guess we'll have to document this too. But uh, he wants to know, should Christians celebrate Christmas? Yeah. What are the origins of Christmas and the traditions? Are they the same as Halloween, like Santa Claus being with Coca-Cola, for example? Yeah, thank you for—yeah, you're right on yeah. that, Isaiah, but yeah. let's uh, just note, he heard Christmas tree was Druids dancing around unclothed while children would have their heads as ornaments on their pagan tree. Is that true? Thanks. Let's start with that. No, that's not true. When it comes to anything we know about Druids or Druidism, it's all basically dependent on the fact that they were exterminated by Julius Caesar in the Gaelic Wars and essentially hunted down piecemeal after that as the religion waxed and waned for the next 400 years. We have no documentation on their traditions, their practices, or them using children's heads as ornaments. I'm sure someone came up with something macabre and shocking to try to establish that, but here's the actual evidence we have. We know nothing. I, Sergeant Schultz said nothing about Druidism as far as their practices and their teachings. We only have samples of their oral traditions that were actually composed and compiled by Christians. So that being said, what is the history around Christmas and the uh, traditions being the same as Halloween? Well, Christmas, obviously, a conglomeration compared to Halloween. For those of you who listened yesterday, Halloween is a largely American-grown religion that essentially just has aspects more a victim of circumstance than anything else right. in association with French and British culture bringing their traditions and trying to capitalize on it. Christmas has some of that, but it's actually a lot older a tradition than people realize. The first thing that I need to clarify when it comes to anything Christmas is that December 25th was not scripturally verified as Jesus' birthday. The reason that early Christians came up with that date was because of a cultural assumption, and you can again look this up, uh, was the uh, assumption around a perfect life, that the perfect life is going to die on the same day that they were conceived, and a lot of early church fathers adopted this, and we'll just call it for what it is, superstition. So with the working assumption of the information we're given in Luke chapter 2, that it was at this certain time and this certain place regarding Jesus's death, that would have been in early April, late March, right. they would then subtract that or I guess add on to it nine months for gestation and note, oh, well, Jesus must have been conceived around the same time. So conceived around late March, that means he would have been born in late 
December. Now, again, this is an unscriptural assumption, an unscriptural inference, right. and all based on Roman culture. So that then being said, why did they come up with it? Well, as well intended as it was, we don't know when Jesus was born. We only know when he physically died and resurrected, and that's the important information. We have definitely a lot of history as far as the year that Jesus was physically born, but as far as the month, we're not told, and it's not relevant. But the point being made is there was this day set aside for remembrance in Christ's Mass, right. and this was generally celebrated by Christians for one reason or another around this time period. Now, here's where the accusations start to be made. As far as the historical origins of them remembering Jesus' birth at this time period, entirely cultural, entirely tradition be that as it may, always good to take time to remember our Lord. There's nothing wrong with that in of itself. But then, you remember our Lord every day. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that's Romans yeah, 14, yeah, right? Yeah. One day above another, every day alike. You want to remember the Lord more December 25th? Great. I'm sure a lot more people will be willing to talk about it, speaking from yeah. experience, than yeah. others. But this is where we need to take a few steps back and ask, okay, but what about all the accusations? What about uh, Saturnalia with Nimrod and Semiramis and the mother goddess giving birth to her own husband and so forth. Well, first of Yikes. all, yeah, that uh, all came not from actual Babylonian sources, that came from Alexander Hislop in his book, The Two Babylons, where he literally made it up. There's no other way to put that. It's not in any of the pagan sources as far as them celebrating Saturnalia at this time period until well after Christianity. And the one that actually has more substance right. to it is a holiday called Sol Invictus. And interestingly enough, they well, they, uh, people like the Zeitgeist film, Bill Maher, and others have just stated as a fact. Well, we know that, uh, you know, Sol Invictus, the date of the sun, well, the moment that you reach the heart of winter, they would celebrate the sun's revival and rebirth, and that's where the resurrection thing came from, you see. Well, uh, the problem with that is Sol Invictus has a lot of dates as far as the times pagans would celebrate it, August 8th, August 9th, August 28th, October 19th, October 22nd, <laughs> and December 11th, which you, again, can all verify this in the work of the um, scholar Thomas J. Talley, who did a work on this called The Origins of the Liturgical Year. So when it comes down to Sol Invictus being generally celebrated on December 25th, the earliest source we have of that actually being the date was during the reign of Emperor Aurelian. Now, Dad, you can maybe give us a refresher on church history. Uh, obviously, Emperor Aurelian, he was one of those uh, oddballs that wanted to be called God, like Caesar Augustus and many right. before him. Uh, was he around, and did he establish the state before or after Christianity had uh, well influenced the Roman Empire? Uh, long after. Long after. Yeah. Now note, it was still in that three to four hundred year time period where Christians were being persecuted, but it was also long enough after the founding of Christianity for it to be reactive rather than inventive. Christians were celebrating Christ's Mass a long time before Aurelian even well, let's just be frank, was born. But with that being said, understand these are inferences made without evidence, like most of the stuff you'll see on TV. So when it comes to the concerns around Saturnalia and stuff, remember that all of the motivation around this and the uh, sticky business, I guess is the best way to put it, is all made based off of either information too late or information spoken by people who have been assumed to be right. Now, this is where we get from the history into the practices. Obviously, the date's not pagan. Pagans co-opted it from Christians, not 
not the other way around. Christians, albeit granted, determined the date of the celebration based off of not Christian sources, and that needs to be taken into consideration. But the uh, key, I think, concern a lot of people have, and you'll see this on well-intended but still misinformed right. Christian channels saying that, uh, oh, the, the tr- Christmas tree is a pagan altar, and uh, if you reach down for presents, you're bowing down to it. You see, you're bowing down to a pagan altar. Yeah, and they'll even throw out a, a scripture or two to try to prove the point. One of them is uh, found in Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 6. There we read this, "...inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It's brought up from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of craftsmen and the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They all work. They are all the work of skillful men." Uh, you know, it talks about this idea of uh, putting together a tree and then putting metal on it. And so uh, some very well-intentioned, but I think misguided individuals have said, this is the practice of the Christmas tree. Well, no, it's not the practice of the Christmas tree. What it is, is the practice of the Asherah pole. And we have a lot of biblical uh, documentation over the fact that Asherah, which was a fertility goddess, Canaanite, uh, and uh, was uh, a real thorn in the flesh to the people of Israel spiritually. And so what you would do is you would set up an Asherah pole. You would either carve the image of Asherah onto a tree, or you would cut down a tree if you wanted to have such uh, an idol in your home, and set up a stand and then do the carving of this particular very gross and graphic image. And uh, uh, again, not to be crass, but just so that the audience understands here, it's not the uh, uh, the evergreen tree that's meant to represent her fertility. No, How it, was Asher it, represented in this? Well, what was the point? It, it, it is more, I guess, if you want a uh, modern equivalent that we've probably seen, it'd be more like a totem pole and that you would see in the Pacific Northwest, but with pretty graphic sexual overtones. We'll leave it at that. Th- that's the key, but, is understand the Christmas tree here in mind isn't the tree, it's a pole where you carve porn into it. Yeah, so... You know, my two cents worth, and this always comes up around Christmas time. I'm really glad, Isaiah, that you brought it up, uh, because we might as well get yeah, rolling on it <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, if you uh, your practice of having a Christmas tree is bringing a tree into your house, car, uh, cutting off all the branches, and then carving some idol image and bowing down before it, I'm definitely opposed to that. Scripture is definitely yeah. opposed to that. But to say that there's some, uh, you know, overriding uh, idea of putting tinsel or ornaments on a tree here is definitely a case of what we call uh, eisegesis. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I saw Jesus. That means reading into the text instead of reading out of the text. So, you know, from uh, our best reports, uh, the whole idea of a pine tree or putting a pine tree near or in your house started in Scandinavian countries, and they would put that out as sort of this uh, harbinger or hope that spring was going to come, the evergreen tree and so forth. Everything else was pretty bleak, uh, but they would take these trees out and shake the snow off them, so they'd have something green to look at, if you will. And once again, before you say, wasn't that a Druid practice? They were the tree seers? No, they were the oak 
seers. That's what druid means. Recognize oak as the strongest of the trees yeah. was meant to be representation of Odin. They didn't use these as altars for his worship. The pine is actually mentioned, believe it or not. This is a Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy's go-to response if people want to make a scriptural case as a picture of the glory of God. In Isaiah 60, verse 13, it says, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary. Now, Isaiah, why would you have pagan altars in your sanctuary? Oh, wait, God's speaking concerning the pine tree. I made those things. Yeah. So don't get, uh, I guess, again, fussy about it. Yeah. But as so, far as, so when, yeah. when people, you know, in, in a sense, a lot of the uh, uh, dust-up and uh, furor over all of this uh, really does come from, in a sense, uh, well-meaning people, don't get me wrong, but people falling into the trap of out-bibling the Bible or uh, trying to uh, take passages from the Bible and support a particular hobby horse they might have. Hey, you know, my two cents worth is if uh, you uh, really uh, don't like Christmas trees, you don't like the smell of pine in your house, and you don't want presents around like that, if it's stumbling to you spiritually, then by all means, uh, don't do it. You know, I just think, uh, I think that's the, the wisest course of action. Uh, don't stumble yourself uh, because, you know, other people uh, might, uh, you know, find themselves uh, doing things or hear on this broadcast that we aren't anti-Christmas tree. But, uh, you know, look at it yourself. And, you know, as far as celebrating a day of Christmas, one of the reasons we have a Christmas Eve service here at Calvary Christian Fellowship is, uh, quite frankly, we want to reach as many people as we possibly can with God's inspired Word. And uh, because we want to reach as many people as we possibly can with His Word, uh, we realize that, uh, uh, what do they call them, uh, CNEs, uh, Christmas and Easter people who will come to church on just those two days of, yeah. of the year. Some people get all bent out of shape about all that because some CNE will sit in your uh, selected seat you always sit in in the sanctuary. But uh, why not seize the opportunity that the culture presents us to be able to tell people about the birth of Jesus, or even more importantly at Easter about his resurrection? Uh, I think we have to make the most of the time for the days are evil, as the scripture says. So uh, we need to redeem that time, and that's why we do what we do. All right. And then again, just to, I guess, belabor the point a bit on history so that you have this information. We'll gladly repeat this as the day draws near. But as far as the, again, accusations of it co-opting pagan worship, remember that Norse paganism in particular in Europe had all but died out by the 11th century. That's when Snorri Sturluson had to basically do his people's work for them when they had all but converted to Christianity at this point. Paganism had all but ceased in Europe. Obviously, there were a lot of Roman Catholic compromises, but the point being made is people like St. Boniface, Martin Luther, believe it or not, wrote about some of the early mentions of Christmas trees. The earliest writing we actually have is a law set in medieval Europe yeah. regarding how high your Christmas tree was supposed to be, as if it was just already assumed to be a form of celebration. And it was referred to as Christ Mass's tree. And these things were associated with plays like the uh, Paradise Tree, tree in the plays concerning Adam and Eve. Obviously, when they would decorate them, it wouldn't be with metal, but it would be with food, and they would enjoy the feast with the popcorn strings and all that other fun stuff. Now, obviously, popcorn, but you get the modern illustration, apples instead of the bulbs and so forth. The point being made, though, is just centered around that. If people are going to make the accusation, paganism, 
first historical mentions of Christmas trees doesn't appear until 500 years after paganism had well been quelled in Europe. Yeah. We're talking about, oh, Christmas. Well, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Well, there's one out of 365% chance. It's not really relevant. But the point of emphasis is the historical reality that not only Christians were celebrating these things, but the first time that any other pagan festivals became associated with it was after Christianity, not before. You need to be aware of those things. And then finally, just again to recap all of these points, when people make these accusations, tie it back to Romans 14. If it's a check in your conscience, listen to him. Yeah. If it's not, then by all means, take the day to remember Jesus' gift to us and maybe follow the example by giving gifts to each other. I hear there's some sales going on. Yeah, so, yeah that's, that's the it's, point. Yeah, it's uh, never miss out on an opportunity for a little commercialism. Uh, got an interesting question on our, uh, our uh, Facebook site from uh, Monica. Monica uh, said, can you please uh, give the primary beliefs of the Freemasons and the Eastern Star uh, organization? She used the words cults there. Um, I think, uh, Monica, it's not necessarily a bad term to describe uh, these organizations. You know, we think about Freemasons, you think of the Shriners and, you know, philanthropic organizations, a uh, bunch of uh, older gents standing around with uh, Moroccan fezes on their heads, and, and they do a lot of charitable work. But uh, one of the things about uh, the Eastern Star, uh, you can't get into the Eastern Star uh, fraternal order unless first you've been uh, accepted into the Freemasons. I think to, to really uh, condense it down and tell you, when a Christian, and there are some people say, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a Freemason, but when you take the oath of Freemasonry, you swear that the doctrines of the Lodge take precedent over your Christian doctrines. Uh, and that gets a little dicey because, among other things, Freemasonry teaches that salvation can be gained by man's good works, that Jesus is just one of many equally revered prophets. He is not God. They will remain silent in the lodge and not talk about Christ. They are approaching the lodge in spiritual darkness and ignorance. When the Bible says Christians are already in the light, children of the light are indwelt by the light of the world. Jesus Christ, by the way, these uh, points are uh, brought forward by an organization called Ex Freemasons for Jesus. So you can look on, more onto their material. Uh, but they know whereof they speak. Uh, by demanding that Christians take the Masonic oath, Masonry leads Christians into blasphemy and taking the name of the Lord in vain. Masonry teaches that it's got to, J A O T U, great architect of the universe. Uh, is the God who is representative of all gods of all religions. So it is pantheistic, uh, or polytheistic, I would say. Yeah. Uh, masonry uh, also uh, makes Christians take a universalistic approach to their prayers, demanding that a generic name be used so as not to offend non-believers who are Masonic brothers. Uh, by swearing the Masonic Oath and participating in the doctrines of the Lodge, Christians are perpetuating a false gospel to other Lodge members who look only to Masonry's plan of salvation to get to heaven. That is, by going through the various rituals and levels of the Lodge, you can attain salvation. But their very membership in such a syncretistic-type organization, they have compromised their witness as Christians. And by taking the Masonic obligation, the Christian is agreeing to allow uh, the false gods and false doctrines taught in Freemasonry to take precedent over the Word of God. Um, among other things, uh, 
Masons believe that the process of joining the lodge uh, causes you to be saved. You can be saved and go to heaven as a result of good works and personal self-improvement. Their view of the Bible is that uh, the Bible is only one of several volumes of sacred law, which they refer to it as being, all of which are deemed to be equally important in Freemasonry, uh, but uh, it is uh, only uh, significant as its uh, claims are uh, to Christians, just as the Quran is important to Muslims. It's not the exclusive word of God. Uh, all members have to believe in a deity, according to Freemasonry, but different religions acknowledge the same God and only call him different names, kind of like My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, uh, if you don't mind the ancient reference. Uh, the Masons believe, and this is another statement, that there is no exclusivity in Jesus or the triune God, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is no doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. It is deemed to be unmasonic to invoke the name of Jesus when praying or mention his name in the lodge, suggesting that Jesus is the only way to God contradicts their principle of tolerance. The name of Jesus has been omitted from Bible verses that are used in Masonic rituals. Jesus is on the same level with all religious leaders. But uh, the Masons' view is this. Through symbols and emblems, Masons teach that man is not sinful, just quote, rude and imperfect by nature. Human beings are able to improve their character and behavior in various ways, including acts of charity, moral living, and voluntary performance of civic duty. That's why they're involved with all these different uh, activities. Humanity possesses the ability of moving from imperfection toward total perfection. Moral and spiritual perfection lies within men and women. So, you know, there you see where the Masons are coming from. Uh, The Eastern Star Organization, once again, you've got to leapt through masonry in order to belong to it. But in both cases, they are a secret society. Uh, They call it themselves the world's largest fraternal organization. Over 500,000 men and women are a member of uh, the Order of the Eastern Star. Uh, It began in the mid-1800s in the United States. Uh, According to the Eastern Star's official website, the purpose is uh, charitable, educational, fraternal, and scientific. But uh, they look uh, good at first glance. But you have to, first of all, uh, adopt the spiritual worldview of a Mason before you come in. Uh, They, uh, again, will uh, teach that uh, salvation is possible through good works. And, uh, you know, the idea of secrecy that's involved with all of that. They say, well, there's certain rituals and things that we don't uh, reveal to the outside world. Well, as soon as you see something like that, uh, it should really be a red flag. So uh, no, uh, the Eastern Star Organization and the Freemasons are not Christian organizations. And in order to belong to them in good standing, you have to essentially refute uh, and reject uh, some pretty key doctrines of scripture, don't you think? Yeah, and uh, again, not the ones that we consider negotiable. Yeah. So that being said, i uh, got an email question from Anonymous who wants to know, uh, could it be that the tellers and writers of the New Testament did so in such a way as to check the boxes of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, thereby fulfilling them by their rendition of events in Jesus' teachings? And again, uh, this is coming from a believer who just wants to make yeah. sure their T's are crossed and their I's are dotted. When it comes to 
these skeptical inferences, they need to be understood as just that, an inference. When we say, what if, and again, I've been in counseling sessions where I can go all day into these sort of things and it's not healthy, the counselor kept uh, basically replying to me by saying, okay, but what is? What is the information we actually have to work with? So what's being suggested here is one of the three forms of the Christ conspiracy theory, that Jesus never actually fulfilled all these things, that someone either set him up, that he set himself up, or that he was set up by those after him to fill in these specific details, and that it was either A, all based on a lie, or fudging enough of the details to fit into Old Testament scripture. Yeah, there was a book uh, out in the uh, 70s uh, bestseller called The Passover Plot that put forth that particular theory. And was subsequently answered, and you'll notice it's not found in places that are uh, honest anymore. They'll put in universities, but I repeat myself. So the point being made is that. What's the theory ultimately bringing up? And I'll go through these piecemeal so that we cover our bases. I'm not dodging the question. But the point being made is just that. What kind of information do we actually have? And does the conspiracy bent on it, the suggestion, actually fit the facts. The first, again, past, present, and future, those before Jesus. Could Jesus' parents have just been so eager to have the Messiah's kid that they tried to set things up in the way that they wanted to? Well, understand that while uh, to a point you might be able to travel a little bit to get to Bethlehem and make sure that Micah 5.2 was fulfilled for your baby boy, is that the only thing that was fulfilled concerning Jesus, could Mary and Joseph have determined their family genealogy to not only be through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's just true for the Jewish people, but both conveniently enough, according to Luke 3 and Matthew 1, with family records to verify, both from the lineage of David, both from the lineage of Shem, both from the lineage of, again, the kings of Israel that would narrow down the Messiah specifically. Those are things beyond their control. Now note, does that answer the suggestion? No, but understand a suggestion isn't an answer either. There were things they could control, but there's also some, uh, I guess, loose odds being set up here, that two people who happen to be from the right family history of the Messiah and the right circumstances to be born where the Messiah ought to be, it's harder, it requires more faith to infer that was Mary and Joseph's plan all along than to say God's plan was being fulfilled all along. Right. You have to go with the data. And again, the person speaking is a Christian. If I was speaking as an atheist, I'd want to give them more information with quotation. But you know these passages, so do we. So if you need more information in regards to the past theory, note the odds get pretty desperate if you're going to impose motive on Mary and Joseph. Now for Jesus himself, could he have set up the circumstances by which he would be teaching? Well, he could teach in parables, and uh, I've read those sections of Isaiah, I think it's uh, chapter 6, that I would speak to them in parables because hearing they wouldn't hear, seeing they wouldn't see, and so forth. Okay, I can choose my teaching style, I'm doing that right now, but could I choose the way that God's power would be demonstrated through me, through the healing of the sick, the restoration of the blind, the lame leaping for joy? That's harder, but uh, maybe he was just a really good doctor. We have to give or psychosomatic uh, uh, explanations for those healings. Yeah, because that's how leprosy works. You just yeah. got to think your nerve endings back into existence. Yeah. You understand it's paralysis, stretching the that sort of thing, but yeah, not psychosomatic. Yeah. But no, this is the things that are looking at Jesus himself. We're not getting into the 
past inferences yet. I'm just setting this up right. with the same argument, because it's going to come to the same conclusion. Could Jesus have set the circumstances up for the method by which he was executed? Could he request his right to be crucified, as opposed to the general method of execution at the hands of Jews for stoning? No, it was the Pharisees' idea, not Jesus' suggestion. Could I have set up the circumstances of me fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah of being executed between two thieves? Could I have set up the circumstances in which being buried in a rich man's tomb while I'm suffocating and beaten within two centimeters of my life uh, kind of nudge Joseph of Arimathea. It'd be kind of hard because your elbow's locked in place, but uh, could I get your family tomb? Yeah. That's not going to be in his control. Or that Jesus' enemies would give Judas Iscariot 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, he, he didn't uh, set his bargain price at the minimum of a slave at that time. These yeah. things kind of stretch information. If we're talking about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it's getting harder for the skeptic, given the actual information. Right. You can inference it from total ignorance, but that's not how you come to an objective conclusion. So now we get to, we've talked about the past right. with Mary and Joseph, the present with Jesus himself, not likely, given all the prophecies that he claimed to fulfill. But what if these fulfillments were all just claims? What about the disciples just saying these things about Jesus? Notice, inference, what if? Well, what is? Well, if you go to the doctrinal thesis of Sean McDowell, he did a historical examination of the three verified executions of the apostles and the reasons for which they went to those bloody, grisly deaths. The apostle Peter being executed in Rome by crucifixion. The apostle James... Upside down, by the way. Yeah, uh, that, that's the yeah. note for the tradition, and yeah. he gives that kind of a loose hand, but we know that he was executed in Rome during the time of Caesar. Yeah. We do know that the apostle James... Uh, Jesus' half-brother, by the way, was thrown off a building and then had his skull beaten with a club when he survived the fall. That's pleasant. And, of course, we have the accounts of uh, the Apostle Paul being beheaded in Rome also during and around the same time as the Apostle Peter's execution. So note those three details. We can talk about the other nine. Uh, there's some traditions associated with Thomas being skinned alive and killed with a spear in India. There's uh, accounts of, I think it was um, Matthias, who was executed in Egypt, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then there was also, um, I said Thomas in India, right? Right. And then uh, another account that's a lot more looser than that concerning the uh, Sons of Thunder and Boanerges. There's also accounts in the Gospels themselves, which he doesn't address directly, of other individuals being executed during the reign of Herod Antipas, I believe it was. Yeah. So note all that information, but we're going off of what we know. And notice, I'm not going to mention the Bible in these things. We're just going off the historical data, and Sean McDowell did a great job of giving secular and spiritual sources to verify these deaths. Why did these guys go to their brutal executions? And note, being thrown off a building, having your head clubbed in, not a good way to go. Being crucified upside down, really not a good way to go. Being beheaded, okay, that's fine, but who was the guy who went that way? This is what we have to ask. The Apostle Paul, according to his own accounts, and wasn't, by the way, contradicted by many opponents that he encountered along the way, right. as a Pharisee of Pharisees, as being taught by Gamaliel, as being a natural-born, not only Roman citizen, but also basically the best stock that Israel had to offer, second to Judah, that was Benjamin. He had everything going for him as far as education, resources, finances, and family, until... 
he had the opportunity to express his self-imposed and uh, explained zeal for persecuting and trying to wipe out the church, not exactly a guy you can attribute motive and setting up a big conspiracy. Okay, I'm going to be the foundation of Christian teaching, write a third of the New Testament, but first got to get educated and i got to build myself up in Judaism to the point where I'm persecuting it, then I'll stage this whole encounter with Jesus. It'll be great. Again, the skeptic has to have a lot of faith for that. He literally left behind all of his prestige, his title, even his name, right. in order to affirm the truth statement that was surrounded by his encounter with the Messiah, that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. And until that point, he had negative reasons <laughs> right. to even suggest that. He was murdering the people as cultists and heretics. He was a jihadi for Judaism, right? This is not the kind of guy who, unless he had a legitimate experience to switch around his mind to then fabricate stories about Jesus as the Messiah. Because note, and this is going to be repeated, you can die for a lie. People do it every day. Right. But you have to believe it's true. No one in their right mind dies for their lies. Let me say that again slowly. You can die for a lie, but you have to believe it's true. No one in their right mind dies for something they made up, for their lies. And that is also the case for the Apostle Peter, and that is also the case for the Apostle Jude, or uh, um, James, excuse me. Jude is also in there, but note the point. When, if you, Dad, I don't have a big brother that's partially your fault, but you do have a big brother. I do. If my uncle Rick yeah. were to claim that he was the Messiah, and you growing up, uh, knowing him well and at hand, were to, of course, hear those claims, what would it take to convince you to literally abandon your entire family legacy, and I mean, granted, it's not much to give up, a carpenter shop, or maybe, we don't know, but, or stone masonry, some have suggested, but James, to leave behind his family, put himself in basically at odds with his culture, with his family, with everything, on the basis of him saying, you know what, I'm going to pretend that my older brother was the Messiah, and that'll be real good until I get my skull caved in. Yeah. No, was not going to happen. And and note as well, this is also important. Was it good for James until that point? Did he uh, enter into a lot of uh, Cleflo Dollar and Kenneth Copeland-style lifestyles? Uh, That would be a big N-O. Yeah, we see in the Acts of the Apostles, the eyewitness testimonies of the early church, that they were impoverished constantly, and that they had to get donations from the other churches in Turkey and Greece. So note that point. He welcomed and embraced the life of poverty, persecution, and eventually a brutal death on the basis of something he made up about his big brother. Yeah. The skeptic has to have more faith than the information we actually have gives us to believe, given the actual data. Now we bring it back to, the again, the Apostle Peter. Was the Apostle Peter the kind of guy who, at the point of Jesus' execution— and note, accounts of embarrassment, this is as good as gold dust historically— Would the founder, the primary eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, who himself had to, didn't contradict, but in his own memoirs, in the Gospel of Mark, admitted to denying having ever known the Lord three times the night he was betrayed, put himself then in the place where he says, you know what, I'm going to start a religion off of that guy I abandoned to his death, in the presence of, by the way, the people I have to now convince of this conspiracy. 
How much faith do you need to believe not only that he would set himself up to literally do a psychological 180 concerning yeah. his perspective of yeah. Jesus, yeah. to convince 11 other people, note the 500 as well afterwards, that they had seen him alive after his resurrection, to put together these documented accounts of their three years of experiences together that all of them agreed unanimously on as having happened the way it was described. Dirt details were, of course, noted for the different perspectives. Note Matthew and Luke and Mark's uh, synopsis, if you will. They're called synoptic because they have that common story and narrative in mind. Right. But they got their facts straight as far as a fair historical inquiry. And when they finally got all of this together, once again, the Apostle Peter, he stayed married, but he definitely didn't uh, enter into prestige. He entered into a persecuted minority at odds with the Jewish community, not only in a social level, talk about the First Council of Jerusalem, but also in a political level, because the Romans didn't recognize Christianity as a valid sect of Judaism, and right. the Jews didn't either. So here's the interesting point. In order to support the claim that the Apostle Peter just shoved these Old Testament prophecies into the life of Jesus, in light of the data we can actually know, without even touching the Bible, about their deaths and why they went to their deaths, according to hostile and contemporary sources, they're given in Sean McDowell's PhD dissertation, it all centers around that one fatal assumption, right. what? that they physically voluntarily and deliberately went to their deaths. And to promote an outrageous lie. That they knew was yeah, a lie, yeah. and that's what's key. Yeah. So again, to the anonymous individual who asked the question, the reason why you need to have these side details, it's not just for us doing the radio program or leave that thought to your pastor, it answers these questions. Because if people are reaching into our minds through a, I guess, uh, minimal defenses of ignorance, of saying, well, you know, Jesus just kind of works for me, I've done it since I was a kid, then they're going to be able to break past those defenses and say, but what if? Yeah. Well, if on the other hand, you take the time to study these things and you know what is, that's what counters these doubts. So thank you for the question and giving, again, the opportunity and blessing for other people wondering perhaps the same thing to consider these facts on the table. But again, Sean McDowell's PhD dissertation will be a fantastic resource for you. If you want a link, uh, feel free to follow through on the email. We'll be happy to send it to you. But the point being made is just that. We know too much, yeah. <laughs> not only about what the disciples wrote and claimed about Jesus to infer that it was a conspiracy, but too much historically about the disciples themselves to claim that this would either A, be the only time in history that a group of people all unanimously and for the same reason went to their deaths for something they knew they made up, yeah, or to just acknowledge the facts on the table. They probably saw something. They yeah. probably experienced something. They probably actually went through something, and that was a physical resurrection from the dead, proving he was the Messiah beyond a reasonable doubt. There's yeah. always going to be unreasonable people, but we want to be... Uh, I guess, uh, in line with more information, not less. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is, uh, speaking of the McDowell family, if you want to read another interesting insight into the implausibility, I mean, to almost the point of absurdity, of uh, Jesus making a conscious decision to fulfill these prophecies in his own life, which is what the Passover plot uh, supposed, or the, present theory. Or the uh, disciples looking back and saying, 
uh, oh, well, we're going to just cut and paste and get Jesus to fulfill some of these prophecies. Um, Josh McDowell and uh, Don Stewart in their classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, quote a study done by Dr. Peter Stoner. It comes from his book, Science Speaks. And uh, in it, Dr. Stoner, who is a statistician, uh, calculated the odds of one individual fulfilling even eight of the major messianic prophecies regarding uh, Jesus by chance. And that just it was an accident. A, just as a quick side note, of the messianic prophecies Jesus fulfilled in his first coming, Christians attribute 103. Right. So and, and that's And that's a very conservative figure. There, there are others that estimate uh, the number is even larger than that. But the, the bottom line is this. Uh, just eight, uh, according to Dr. Stoner's research, the odds of one person doing this are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is 10 with 17 zeros after it. It's a number that is so large that we don't even have a name for it. Uh, it would be the rough equivalent, we are told, of, uh, according to Josh McDowell and Don Stewart, of uh, taking 10 to the 17th power silver dollars. You could have a mass the size of the state of Texas, three feet deep. Uh, what uh, a person who says that uh, Jesus just happened to fulfill these prophecies is saying, trying to get us to believe, is the same thing as saying, have this mass of silver dollars the size of the state of Texas. Uh, mark one with an X and drop it anywhere you want in the entire territory of the state of Texas. Stir the whole mass thoroughly. Then give one individual an opportunity to wander anywhere they want to wander inside this uh, massive silver dollar, three feet deep, uh, the size of the state of Texas, pick any silver dollar they want and come up with the one marked with an X on the first try. Now, <laughs> if you were able to do that, someone might say the game was rigged. Well, in a sense, God rigged the game because his sovereign hand caused Jesus to fulfill these prophecies. But there's nothing accidental about them. And if uh, there was any way that, for instance, Jesus' enemies could have said, oh, well, you're just uh, cutting and pasting. We really don't believe these things are true about the Messiah or that Jesus didn't do them. They would have, they said. Would have said so because their objections to the gospel are well noted even in the book of Acts. And the Talmud, by the way, the accusations and slander against Jesus, calling his birth illegitimate, calling him a sorcerer, and saying that he's, well, in a state of hellfire I won't describe for you right now, is, of course, on the basis of what? Them admitting to him having been claimed very early on, at least during the time of the Talmud, to have been born of a virgin, like Isaiah 14 would have predicted, like him performing miracles, like the book of Isaiah numerously predicted, and of course that him being a false teacher meant that he was claiming things of himself about God. I had an encounter last week with a Jewish figure who didn't uh, object to that in the slightest, just the fact that it was true. So note those points. Yeah, yeah. Interesting question here on our YouTube site from Yari. I appreciate the question. Uh, how do we deal with psychosomatic healings in the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, quite a bit. I understand where the question's coming from, Yari. Uh, there was an interview with Benny Hinn where he conceded that many, or if not most, of the healings at his healing crusades are psychosomatic, but, uh, you know, who knows? God could use psychosomatic healings uh, for his glory. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, when we are talking about the name of Jesus, that, I think, is the key to your question. 
because doing things in the name of Jesus means doing them the way that Jesus did them. Jesus didn't heal people, for instance, who came to him and said, oh, I've got one leg that's longer than another. Um, that's one of the biggies they do at these um, dog and pony shows. Um, you know, the people that uh, Jesus healed, he healed who had, for instance, uh, in the book of Mark chapter 2, uh, a man came to him with leprosy. Now, leprosy was a living death, and Jesus not only touched the man, but he instantaneously healed him from this physical ailment. I don't see any of the faith healers doing this sort of thing. Permanent nerve damage doesn't come back unless something new is introduced. Now, can someone go to one of these rallies and be talked in to feeling better? Yeah, but uh, once again, when God heals somebody, he heals them permanently. Uh, it's not just something that makes you feel better because you were, you know, wowed by the crowd and kind of ginned up to uh, make a step out of your wheelchair or throw away your cane for a while. Uh, the kind of healings that Jesus did were verifiable. Uh, in one case, uh, this man who was born blind uh, was brought before the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin. I just really encourage you to read uh, through the account of this in John chapter 9, Yari. Uh, and uh, they wanted to find out how in the world he got healed. And they, they pretty much uh, brought his parents in and said, is this is your son? Was he born blind? Said, yeah, but he can speak for himself because they were worried about being put out of the synagogue. And then uh, the man who was born blind, you know, said, uh, you know, the man who healed me, uh, healed me in this way. You know, and they kept asking, he goes, why are you asking me again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? And uh, so... They took that well. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a scene. So understand something. In that set of circumstances, they could not deny it. Another major healing in uh, Acts chapter 4, or Acts chapter 3 going into chapter 4, was a man who was born lame, who was healed at the gate beautiful. And we are told that uh, even though the powers that be had Peter and John arrested, uh, they really couldn't say anything against the miracle because everybody knew who this guy was and that he was lame from birth and that a great and notable work of God had taken place there. It wasn't that this guy, you know, had kind of had a bum ankle and he felt a little bit better and jumped up a little bit. Uh, no, he was completely and totally healed. So the kind of healings that we see in the Scripture, including raising people from the dead, very different from a lot of the stuff that you see uh, in uh, the psychosomatic world uh, that a lot of faith healers trade upon. Now, could God, in fact, heal somebody at one of these rallies? Well, he certainly could. Uh, in the same way that, uh, boy, you know, when uh, the charlatans were running the roost on TV evangelism, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that gave their lives to Christ at a lot of these rallies that these guys were living totally corrupt lives uh, were doing. I had one guy come up to me, and he goes, oh, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. And I go, why not? He goes, well, I gave my life to Christ at this guy's rally, and now I find out he's a total uh, failure and hypocrite. And I said, well, did you invite a TV evangelist into your heart that night? And he went, no. And I said, who did you ask to forgive your sins and come into your heart and make you a brand new person? And he said, well, Jesus. And I said, well, is Jesus a hypocrite? Is Jesus corrupt? Well, no. Well, then you're fine. You know, it, you know it's been said, and it's kind of one of our uh, jokes that we tell around here on staff, 
going back to the issue of Balaam and his donkey, God has spoken through donkeys in the past and seems to uh, speak through donkeys yet even in our day, if you'll pardon the illusion there. So it's not so much that this person is doing something that verifies, or even somebody walking out of some place saying, well, I got saved at this guy's rally, that makes that legitimate. Remember what Jesus warned about in Matthew chapter 7. He said that many would say on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not teach in your name? In your name do many miracles, and in your name cast out demons. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Just because miraculous manifestations take place doesn't mean anything about the person running the rally. All it means is that God has compassion on people, and sometimes he will have that compassion on people not because of us, but in spite of us. Yeah, and again, just to clarify terms, psychosomatic means in the mind only, not in the body. So if God's going to perform a healing, you said it would be permanent, not that they'd never get sick again or never get injured, they would be healed totally from what's being addressed. And the reason is because if God's going to do a miracle, it's going to fall in line with his character. It's going to line up with and affirm his written word. These faith healers teach a lot of things, but it's not their word, or it's not his word. And in a a related question, uh, Sean, uh, is the idea then of doing these kind of uh, phony charlatan sort of things uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Yari wanted to know. It's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's just What is the teaching. blasphemy of the, the Holy Spirit? Yeah, both are dangerous. Uh, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it comes up in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, among other places. It Matthew was spo- 12, yeah. yeah. It was spoken in the context of people who were seeing Jesus perform miracles, legitimate ones, and saying, that's not of God, that's of the devil. So they have the attitude that's explaining away the Word right. of God and saying, no, it's not of God. It's resisting conviction. If you read John 16, note the Holy Spirit's role is to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, what we need saving from, how we're saved from it, and that there's not a lot of time left. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to impede that work, to resist the need for salvation. Or to blaspheme by calling the Holy Spirit a liar, right? Which ultimately culminates in this. The only sin that God can't forgive is a refusal to be saved. Yeah, and that's totally what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's all about. Great questions, Jerry. Appreciate that. Gr- appreciate all your uh, great questions. It's always such a blessing to be able to explore God's Word together. Uh, we'll be back with another edition of A Reason for Hope. Before you know it, till then, Scott Richards for Sean Richards. Wish you a great rest of your day in the Lord. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.